This is a talk by Joel titled "Listening to the Stones." Talk number seven. No goal, no boundaries. Recorded October 2011 at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. Ibn Arabi has a very profound thing to say about Gnostics. Now I have to explain a little bit of the terminology he uses. It's a little strange to our years. First of all, he uses this word Muhammadan. Now, actually, Westerners used to think of all Muslims as Muhammadans, and from a Muslim point of view, it's completely wrong because they thought of well, we're Christians, we follow Christ, and the Muhammadans follow Muhammad, but the Muhammadans don't consider it that way. They are Muslims; they don't think of Muhammad as a god or anything like that. But within Islam and within the Sufi communities, part of their cosmology is. That individual Sufis practice and walk their path under the banner of some prophet, and within Islam, since for instance Jesus is a prophet in Islam, some Sufis walk under the banner of Jesus, some under the banner of Noah, some under the banner of Moses. These are all prophets in Islam as well as in Christianity and Judaism, and so they're more like designations of、uh, levels of attainment on a path, you might say, than. Having anything to do with the religion as a whole, so he uses the term Muhammadan for Gnostics who have the highest complete attainment, complete realization. And then he talks about witnessing, and witnessing here is a much more subtle, broader idea than simply、uh, the way it sounds in English, where you witness the crime and you come to court and say, "I witnessed that." Witnessing here is both an outer witnessing, but it's More importantly, an inner witnessing. When you look inside, what do you see? What are you discovering inside, and so forth? So this is what he says, and I'm going to read it a couple times so we can unpack it. The Mohammedan witnesses no goal. His vastness is the vastness of the real, and the real has no goal in himself, which his being might ultimately reach. The real is witnessed by the Mohammedan, so he has no ultimate goal in his witnessing. But other than the Mohammedan, witnesses his own possibility. Hence, he stands in a state or station which, in his eyes, may come to an end, or change, or cease to exist. He sees this as the ultimate goal of knowledge of God. So let's go through that again. The Mohammedan witnesses no goal. In other words, the Mohammedan isn't concerned about goals. He doesn't have a goal. He's, you could say, goal-free. That's not part of his perception or her perception. His vastness is the vastness of the real, and the real has no goal in himself, which his being might ultimately reach. The real is another designation of ultimate reality. Al Haq. So the real is interchangeable with Allah, and that's why he gives the real a personal pronoun, himself, and so forth. So there's this identity. The Muhammadan, in his true nature or her true nature, is this limitless, groundless reality, and this vast, limitless, groundless reality has no goal and isn't heading anywhere, isn't going anywhere, and doesn't approach life as A journey to get someplace, and this ties in with what I've said several times. One of、uh, Ibn Arabi's favorite ways of 
described in the cosmos is it's all a divine self-disclosure. So this moment right here is a divine self-disclosure. And it's no more or less a divine self-disclosure than the last moment, and it's no more or less a divine self-disclosure than the next moment's going to be. And so we're not going anywhere. We can't get any you know, more divine self-disclosures than we have already. So there's no goal here. We're not reaching to try to get somewhere. The real is witnessed by the Mohammedan, so he has no ultimate goal in his witnessing. So the perception of the Gnostic isn't aimed at anything. It's the same perception, if you like, as Allah, as God. It's not saying, well, uh, here's what this is like, and now hopefully things are going to get better tomorrow. Because they're not going to get better tomorrow because there's nothing wrong with them today. Then he says, but other than the Mohammedan, in other words, a deluded person, other than the Mohammedan witnesses his own possibility. So you could say he's or she is concerned about the future possibilities. Hence, he stands in a state or station which in his eyes may come to an end or change or cease to exist. So if I'm deluded, I experience my situation as though I'm in a particular state or station or condition and I'm hoping that this will come to an end and it will transform into some other state or station. And I'll make progress that way. I'll move from one state to another state to another state, hopefully to higher and higher states or however you want to express it. And then he says, this person, other than Mohammedan, a deluded person, he sees this as the ultimate goal of knowledge of God. That, okay, I'm sitting here, and I'm in this lowly station, this deluded state, but ultimately, if I stand a spiritual path, this state will come to an end, and I will attain another state called knowledge of God. So I have a goal. My goal is knowledge of God. And he's saying, this is part of the delusion. This isn't true. There's not going to be a state of now there's knowledge of God. This is the state of knowledge of God. I'm getting these looks like... Well, you see, now we're approaching the highest teachings, which you all want, but when we get there, uh, nobody wants them anymore. (laughs) So the overall message here, really, is that if all forms are a divine self-disclosure, then the cosmos isn't going anywhere. It's not getting anywhere. It's got nothing to achieve beyond what it's achieving right now. So, let's look at our guru, our stone. Now, put it down somewhere in front of you so you're not handling it. So it, it sort of can be on its own now, not under your control. Now look at that stone. Do you think that stone has a goal? Why are you laughing? Because it's a ridiculous idea. Is that why? Yeah. But do you have a goal? Yeah. Yeah, you don't laugh about that one. I think that's hysterical, actually. No, but seriously, 
Here is I mean, a perfectly ordinary object. It's, uh, you know, it doesn't stand out in the cosmos. It's not special. But you just look at it. Obviously, it has no goal. Why does it have no goal? What kind of goal could it have? See, we project this whole drama and stories and stuff onto ourselves and each other as though there was something special about us that, you know, stood out from the rest of the cosmos around here. But if we're all of the same taste, if there's universal sameness under anything else, what applies to the stone at that fundamental level, why wouldn't it apply to us? The stone isn't unhappy with being what it is. Is it? I mean, let's presume it isn't anyway. Uh, wait, you, know, you remember in the beginning we wanted to hear if it spoke about God. Let me see. But are you happy? Okay. Yeah, it said it's very happy the way it is. Look over there at the Tom stones. Tom's are so symmetrical and round and smooth. Would you like to be like that stone? You're kind of ugly. No, it's fine with the way it is. Very happy the way it is. doesn't want to be like this stone. So it has no goal. I think if you went out there and asked the Doug Fur whether it has a goal, I don't think it would have a goal. You know, it's okay being a Doug Fur, but those cedars, they're really good looking. They're the star of the forest. They got so much glamour. No, it doesn't occur to me. So right here is this profound teaching that we always completely overlook. It's the teaching that Ibn Arabi singled out as the teaching that applies to the Gnostics, the fully realized enlightened beings, quote unquote. And here it's manifesting in this stone, right there, right in front of us, all the time. But we don't see it. Because why? We're distracted with our stories about how I'm going to get better. What's that saying? Every day I'm getting better and better in every way, and da 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 da. Now, before we go on here, let's not confuse the relative with the absolute. I know some of you are getting worried already. At a relative level, and I don't mean to soften the teaching, but at the level of imagination, at the level of the lila, the playing of the game, yes, we have goals. You know, and I say this uh, quite often, there's a park outside of my house, and uh, kids come and play all kinds of things, and there's a little, I don't know, junior, more than junior, infant soccer league or something. I mean, these kids are really a little, you know. <laughs> they have these little colorful jackets on, and they come out with their parents, and, you know, the ball is bigger than they are, practically. <laughs> and they set up a field, a soccer field, and they use these cones, like traffic cones, to make the boundaries, and then they have a little goal, and then the parents direct the kids to run up and down the field and try and kick the ball in the goal. So, and, you know, if you didn't have that, the game wouldn't be any fun. I mean, that's what makes the game. Otherwise, the kids are just running up and down the field <laughs> kicking balls around, right? So you give them something to do, you direct them, keeps them from getting in trouble. I mean, it's a very worthwhile activity. But it's imaginary. And the kids know it. I mean, the parents sometimes don't. They get a little upset. But, you know, the kids are having fun. And then when the hour is up, oh, blow the whistle, they pick up all the cones and they go away. And you look out there and there's nothing. There's no goals. There's no boundary lines. There's no nothing. It's all gone. So, 
This teaching is not that you should go through everyday life like a zombie or catatonic or something and have no goals in that kind of sense. But it is a teaching about believing that these goals are real and that achieving them is going to make you ultimately happy. It's going to bring about abiding happiness. That's the delusion. And this is a delusion that we fall into very easily. And the key to let you know you fall in that delusion is you're going to suffer when your goals aren't met. Because you've taken them to be real. You've taken them to be some sort of ultimate importance. They have to be reached. And if they don't, you're a failure and blah, 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 blah. So, having that caveat in there, let's go on because... The reason that the cosmos has no goal is because the cosmos is already perfect. Here's Anandamoyama, Hindu. He is one and yet he is many. And in spite of being the many, he is one. Such is his Leela. He is equally whole in a grain of sand as he is whole in a man. And as he is whole in his totality... Complete and perfect. This goes back to the teaching of universal sameness. A grain of sand contains the whole of Brahman, all of reality, as much as a human being does. And anything else in between or beyond. And it's all complete and perfect. This is why in the Tibetan school of Dzogchen, they have what they call the three terrible oaths. Now, Dzogchen, the term means the great perfection. And it applies both to the nature of reality, the ultimate nature of reality, and it applies to the name of the school. So don't get confused. They are related, but they can be used in different contexts. So the school of Dzogchen has these three oaths that a practitioner will take. And the first one is, whatever happens, may it happen. Whichever way it goes, may it go that way. And the last one is, there is no purpose, or there is no goal. Now, as long as we're on a path, we have this paradox. We actually need a goal. We need the North Star of Enlightenment, Realization, Marifa, Satori, whatever the name the particular tradition has for it, as our point of orientation. What are you doing on this path? Well, I'm striving to attain enlightenment. I'm striving to awaken. I'm striving to do this. And that's very, very important. Otherwise, we end up going around in circles and chasing lesser goals. So I mentioned earlier that it's very easy to get addicted to bliss. If your practice starts generating a lot of bliss, then you start practicing in order to generate the bliss, and this kind of bliss is temporary, and so it's like chasing your tail. You're going round and round. And so if you've lost track of the real purpose of this is enlightenment, it's not bliss, well, that can happen. But if you remember, enlightenment, there's your North Star. You can steer your ship by that North Star. But the paradox is as you'll find out if you continue steering for your goal, as long as you're steering for your goal, you can't get there. This is the way the path works. Whichever way you start, if it's an authentic path, it's going to lead you to a paradox. It's going to lead you to a trap. You can't go forward, you can't go back, you can't go to the left, you can't go to the right. You can't figure it out. 
So this teaching is not a counter-teaching to having a goal. To have the goal of enlightenment is a remedy for not knowing what you're doing, for getting lost in samsara. But ultimately, even that remedy has to be discarded. So here's what Zen Master Suzuki Roshi says. If you seek for freedom, you cannot find it. Absolute freedom itself is necessary before you can acquire absolute freedom. That is our practice. As long as you're seeking for freedom, you're never going to get freedom. What you need is freedom. Then you can get freedom. So, then the question is, if this is true, if you cannot find freedom seeking it, you need freedom first, why not just stop seeking it? Just stop. Well, again, this involves a paradox. Because you'll end up seeking to stop seeking. It becomes a sort of a convoluted way of seeking, but it's seeking nevertheless. And when I say try to stop seeking, by the way, I mean try to stop seeking completely. It's not just try to stop seeking enlightenment. It's try to stop seeking for any kind of happiness anywhere, for any kind of goal, purpose, or whatever. Stop seeking for anything. Because it's easy to stop seeking for enlightenment and then, you know, go seek for a better job and a better house and stuff like that. So this has to be a, a stopping that is completely stop seeking. And you can try this. It's a, a very good thing to try. And you'll probably discover that you can't. And the reason you can't is because you didn't decide to start seeking in the first place. It wasn't your decision. You were conditioned into it. And so the conditioning is rolling on, whether you want it or not. So what can you do? And the answer is nothing. And here's how the Hasidic masters describe this. Seek to make yourself into a vessel for God's presence. God, however, is without limit. Endless is his name. How can a finite vessel hope to contain the endless God? Therefore, see yourself as nothing. Only one who is nothing can contain the fullness of the presence. So, you have to be nothing. Now, again, it's a paradox. Nothing can't do anything to bring nothing about because there's nothing there to do anything. So we have to sit with this, this paradox. Here's how the anonymous author of the Christian classic, The Cloud of Unknowing, describes this practice. And he's writing to a younger monk. He's mentoring a younger monk. And he says, Do not try to withdraw into yourself. For to put it simply, I do not want you to be anywhere. Why? because nowhere physically is everywhere spiritually. Understand this clearly. Your spiritual work is not located in any particular place. But when your mind consciously focuses on anything, you are there in that place spiritually as certainly as your body is located in a definite place right now. Your senses and faculties will be frustrated for lack of something to dwell on, and they will chide you for doing nothing. But never mind. Go on with this nothing. Don't worry if your faculties fail to grasp it. Actually, that is the way it should be. 
For this nothingness is so lofty, they cannot reach it. It cannot be explained, only experienced. So, this is a practice of doing nothing, striving for nothing, having no goal, just being. And he warns you, and this is a good warning, that your mind after a while is going to start chiding you. What are you doing here sitting doing nothing? I mean, at least you should be meditating. Why don't you focus on your breath or something? No. So I'm going to read the instruction from the Cloud of Unknowing one more time, and we're going to do this practice, and we'll talk about it later. So here's the instruction. Do not try to withdraw into yourself. For to put it simply, I don't want you to be anywhere. Why? Because nowhere physically is everywhere spiritually. Understand this clearly. Your spiritual work is not located in any particular place. But when your mind consciously focuses on anything, you are there in that place spiritually as certainly as your body is located in a definite place right now. Your senses and faculties will be frustrated for lack of something to dwell on. And they will chide you for doing nothing. But never mind. Go on with this nothing. Don't worry if your faculties fail to grasp it. Actually, that is the way it should be. For this nothingness is so lofty that they cannot reach it. It cannot be explained, only experienced. Here we go. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. Okay, how about this business of no goal? Was anybody successful, quote unquote? Did you reach your goal of having no goal in your meditation? 
You were fairly what? Thoroughly confused. Thoroughly confused. Wow, this is starting to work, finally. <laughs> Sally. Well, my experience was, I felt like I was doing pretty well. I was just sort of in this um, empty space, and then I started feeling like I was breaking out in hives. It was like my body was, I had points of itching from head to toe. <laughs> and so then I got to work with that for the rest of the session. Let me mention that this is not uncommon. Uh, anytime a meditation practice is deepening, one of the signs is that the way it's usually described is little spiders running up and down all over your body, but hives would be the same thing. So you are not the first one to ever experience that by any means. So don't think that something's gone wrong. In fact, quite the opposite. That means your meditation is really deepening. So you're starting to manifest these common signs of a deepening meditation. Yes? Um... I felt like it, it went pretty well in terms of, of I didn't like state an intention when I first started off, and I didn't follow my breath. I nothing. I just I didn't even look down. You know, I just looked at the wall there. Um, I didn't even try to do nothing. I mean, I just was really doing nothing. You know, no thoughts or anything. Right. I was kind of losing a sense of my body, and then I started seeing um, lights, these glowing lights. Um, uh, behind Annie and, and um, Ellie and Bill. And I um, I just ignored that. I mean, it, was, it kept happening, but I just ignored it. Um, and then, then um, it's kind of like everybody disappeared, and all the objects disappeared. And, and I just felt like, I, w- I was in all of this space. Uh. <laughs> I kind of felt catatonic for quite a while after that. Uh-huh. When I went to my room, I was like, I was just standing there. <laughs> no will to act. Right. So there are three things you mentioned, and all of them are, again, like the hives, very common. Seeing lights. When a meditation practice deepens, you know, people can start seeing lights or hearing sounds, and you did exactly the right thing. Just ignore it. And then you said everything got just kind of wiped out. The very same thing happened to me fairly early on in a a concentration practice I was doing with this Tibetan meditation teacher, and I reported it to him. I thought it was very spectacular. And he looked at me and said, hmm, well, notice that and go back to your breath. (laughs) So, you know, very good. And then this idea that you felt kind of catatonic and had no will and so forth, it's a very common experience in meditation. We used to call it meditation making you stupid. The more you do, you get stupider and stupider. I mean, literally, like stupid. You can't think of anything. You know, It'll wear off. Don't worry about it. You get back to the world. You get those stimulants going, and you won't end up in a mental hospital on the catatonic ward. So, again, it's a common thing to go through. And don't be uh, discouraged by any of it, because all of this is signs that the meditation is really working. You are actually shifting your state of consciousness. You're going into altered states of consciousness. That's what we're trying to do here. Not that enlightenment is an altered state of consciousness, but we are experimenting with different states of consciousness for a number of reasons. One is the world and ourselves appear to us differently, 
And that tends to break up this rigidity that we have, the sense that the world is the way our minds construct it. And when we start to deconstruct it, everything gets a little fluid and, you know, weird. But it also informs us that things don't have to be the way the mind constructs them. The mind can construct them in different ways or not construct them so much or uh, whatever. And then also there are some states that are more opportune for awakening than other states. So that's why sometimes we aim for a state of no thought because in that state there's more of a chance of awakening than in a more normal state. Anyway, excellent report and excellent meditation. Okay, no more comments, let us move on. So we begin looking into the true nature of our guru stone, and by extension all other objects, and then the observer of objects. And we use this meditation technique that we call choiceless awareness, which eventually becomes spacious awareness. And to facilitate choiceless awareness, we adopted a much simpler scheme for identifying the phenomena we experience. So instead of our complicated categories of our English language, we adopted a scheme of identifying all phenomena according to only six simple categories. Bodily sensations, sounds, tastes, smells, sights, and mental phenomena. So we practice whatever uh, phenomena arose, instead of giving it the English name it has or identifying with some complicated category like, you know, rain or whatever, we gave it just the identification of the field. So sound is sound, sight sight, smell smell, taste taste, sensation sensation, etc. In this process, however, we are still making distinctions. And ultimately, even these distinctions between sights, sounds, tastes, smells, thoughts, uh, and whatnot are imaginary. Just like all distinctions are imaginary. Uh, remember what the Lakmatara Sutra said. In essence, things are not two, but one. All duality is falsely imagined. All duality is falsely imagined. Rumi says, that oneness is on the other side of descriptions and states. Nothing but duality enters speech's playing field. We talked about that before. Just the simple act of naming stone creates a duality, separates stone from everything that is not stone. So he's saying this is true Whenever we speak, speaking is an act of creating distinctions. So whenever we are speaking or whenever we are thinking, we are creating distinctions. And this is why Chung Su says, forget the ears, forget distinctions, leap into the boundless and make it your home. This is the same kind of instruction that the anonymous author of The Cloud of Unknowing was giving to the young monk. Leap into the boundless and make it your home. Remember, he said, you're going to enter this darkness and you learn to be at home in this darkness. That's the same teaching as Chung Fu. So, let's try one round of choiceless awareness, leading to spacious awareness, if you get there. And as we go, 
We'll start with our concentration, and then we'll start going through each of the fields. And when you first are doing this, as you are progressing, notice, okay, I'm in the field of bodily sensations. Now I'm going to the field of sound. But then also look there and see if there's any kind of real boundary that you can identify between bodily sensations and sounds. And then when you move from sounds and you move to include tastes and smells, if there are any tastes and smells, see if you can identify any boundary that separates them from sounds and bodily sensations. And then when you move to sight, see if you can find any boundary. And then the same thing with mental phenomena. Now when I say, see if you can find any boundary, I don't mean give the mind license to start spinning about lots of boundaries that the mind will create if the mind starts thinking about it. It's going to just pile boundary on top of boundary and distinction on top of distinction. So don't listen to what the mind's saying. Look in your own experience. Is there a boundary between them? Uh, If you find you're in spacious awareness and you haven't found any boundaries and the gong hasn't rung, then just relax in this, as Chung Tzu calls it, this vast boundlessness. Literally, no boundaries here. And just be that boundlessness. So, everybody ready? Here we go. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. So, what was your experience? Did you find any boundaries between these various fields? Ellie? It just seems, you know, I can roll, like the body, um, or the mind, the body and mind, just um, manufactured something like that. I'm sorry. They manufactured them. 
You saw that, that it manufactures them. Excellent. Excellent. Yes? Um, there weren't any boundaries. There are differences. But when the line comes in, when you try to explain it to someone else or to yourself, that seems to be when distinctions arise. Wonderful. What a wonderful observation. To say that reality, the ultimate reality, is non-dual is not to say that it's all uniform mush, that it's completely homogeneous. Once we start talking about it, we are already starting our boundary creation. But it doesn't mean that everything, uh, and I'm using words to point now, that everything is of the same texture and, and whatnot. But the the insight, the crucial insight is to see, okay, there's the experience of the non-dual reality. And then we start thinking about it or describing it either to ourselves or to others. And boom, here come the boundaries. And that's fine. We want to be able to describe this both to ourselves and to others. But we want to recognize where the boundaries are coming from. And we want to recognize the nature of the boundaries as well as the nature of the reality that they're being superimposed upon. So, excellent observation. Yeah, more. It's not like there are like really clear boundaries when something would come into or go out of awareness. It's sort of like a, a shocky little something. A what? A shocky little... Shocky? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, when she, like, well, something would come in or go out of awareness and it seemed to have a real time or time, place, when it was in awareness or not in awareness. So the, it wasn't that so much that that was different from field to field, but like each thing had that. Very interesting. And that relates more to what we were doing when we were trying to look at the inseparability of phenomena from consciousness. And you're noticing the phenomena rises and there seems to be a clear boundary between when it wasn't and now it is, and then when it leaves and again the phenomena is no longer there, but the awareness is there, and it seems to be a clear boundary at that end, too. Is that correct, what I'm... Yeah. Okay. I think one of the easiest way to examine this is with sound. So let's listen to the gong again. Follow the sound back to its source, just the way we were doing before, and see if you can detect a boundary between the sound and the no sound.
So is there a boundary between sound and silence? Yeah. That example is kind of hard because of the nature of the sound of the bell. Yes. But when I've been listening to other sounds, like going out or, or even in here, some of them are so much more sharp. Yes, the sharp, yes, yes, it does. But it's a question of listening closely then, more closely. I should say, it's listening with a completely undistracted mind, and then it feels like you're listening more closely, and it feels like time expands. And so you can see that it's the same phenomena, except it's a curve that goes like that rather than like that. Maura, did you detect a boundary there? No, but it was the same thing Judas. <laughs> okay. Because I've been doing it a lot with the visual field. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, close my eyes. Right. Well, I think it's a question of, of observation here. I think if you continue to observe, you'll see the same thing is true of the sound of any other phenomena. The sound of the gong ringing. Anyway, it's something to continue to investigate. We're not going to stick with the six sense fields here this morning. We're going to move on. But this is something that's really worth investigating because to really be able to see that these distinct boundaries are superimposed by the mind is a great insight to have. Somebody's... Oh, fifth. Okay. I was going to say that I noticed that... To detect this apparent boundary, I had to go conceptual. And my mind got in there and said, moment, you know, this concept of there's a moment where there's sound and then there's a moment where there's not sound. But it was obvious that moment, the whole idea of moment is just a concept. I've been struggling lately to understand calculus. And one of the things about (laughs) the early... Calculus, when Newton and Leibniz first started figuring it out, I'm not going to try to explain it to you. I couldn't explain it to you. But the point is, they're looking for instantaneous velocity, and of course, in a moment, there's zero velocity, so there's only velocity in, in some duration, but they want the instant. So they take zero, but they can't do anything with zero because you can't divide by zero. So they add on, let's call it n. So zero plus n. And then you can make n as small as you like conceptually, so you can make it as absolutely small as you like. You can't get to zero because you'll be back to dividing by zero. And then the mathematicians keep insisting, this isn't a trick. Well, I'll tell you something, it sort of looks like a trick to me. I mean, you're dividing by zero and you're cheating here. Well, there's a whole conceptual way of handling that, that you're actually approaching a limit. And it's a very abstract concept, but it's totally conceptual. That's the point. If you're going to actually do this, you can kind of define a limit in a backhand kind of way, but it's not anything you're ever going to experience in sounds or sights or anything. <laughs> yes, what? I knew I'd get a rise out of him. <laughs> oh, just by the way, the word calculus means stone and you can't find it either. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? I read that somewhere, yeah. Because people used to count with stones. <laughs> Very good, wow. Okay. Let's uh, move on here. It's very interesting to go from all the very complex boundaries of our 
natural languages and then find a simpler scheme and then start to identify phenomena in terms of very simple boundaries and then go look again and find, well, even these simple boundaries aren't really real, they're still imaginary. But the most important boundary we want to look at is the boundary between subject and object, I and other, self and world. This, as we said in the very beginning, is the boundary upon which the whole house of delusion is built. So if we can realize that that boundary is imaginary, that that boundary doesn't actually exist, that is realization, that is enlightenment, that is gnosis. Here's what the Zen master Wang Po says about it. A perception, sudden as blinking, that subject and object are one, will lead to a deeply mysterious, wordless understanding. And by this understanding, you will awake to the truth of Zen. So there's several things about it. First of all, it's a perception. I don't know what the original Chinese was, but I would translate it as a direct perception. Sudden is blinking. In other words, it's not something that is sort of gradually figured out that kind of slowly dawns in you. It's a no boundary there. And so sudden is blinking. The subject and object are one. In other words, there's no difference between them. That's a way of saying there's no boundary there. Will lead to a deeply mysterious, wordless understanding. Wordless understanding is a crucial part of this. We say over and over and over that gnosis is beyond thought. It's beyond what can be spoken or thought or conceived. Wordless understanding, and by this understanding you will awake to the truth of Zen. So, Shankara, great Hindu mystic we've quoted before, agrees. Listen to what he has to say. The illumined seers know him as the uttermost reality, infinite, absolute, without parts, pure consciousness. In him they find that knower, knowledge, and known have become one. So this is subject to object, the knower and the known. And even if we make a distinction between knowing, knower, knowing, and the known, all those distinctions are imaginary. Ibn Arabi says about the Gnostic, he sees only God as being that which he sees, perceiving the seer to be the same as the seen. So, wherever he looks, he sees only God, and that means the boundaries between the various phenomena don't ultimately exist. They're imaginary, because it's all God. You can't ultimately distinguish God from God. But more than that, the seer and the seen are one. There's no boundary between the seer and the seen. So God's on the outside, God's on the inside. It's God that's perceiving God. And then listen to the Christian mystic John Roisbrook. What we are, that we behold. And what we behold, that we are. For in this pure vision, we are one life and one spirit with God. So we are what we behold, and what we behold is what we are. So there's no boundary between what we see and or behold in any sense and us. So this is 
again, a universal teaching, a universal witnessing, I should say here, of mystics of all traditions. In fact, I would go farther and say, this is the definition of a mystic or a Gnostic. If somebody claims to be a Gnostic and they're not teaching that the ultimate reality is realized by seeing that there is no difference between subject and object, then they aren't a Gnostic, by definition, by my definition anyway. There's something else, and for the moment we can say maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but whatever it is, I'm drawing a distinction now, they aren't a Gnostic. So this is a way if you are following mystical teachings and you're trying to decide if you run across some teacher or some teaching, whether it is a mystical teaching, whether it is a teaching that leads to Gnosis, somewhere in the teaching there's going to be this. Now, it might not be the first thing you read. You open a first chapter of a book, it might not come to the last chapter. Somewhere in there, there's going to be this teaching. Otherwise, it's not a, in my definition, authentic mystical teaching. So, let's look at our Guru's now. Why don't you put it out there in front of you? So what the mystics are saying is, you are what you behold. You are that stone. That stone is you. So this is one of the situations where uh, on my path, if I had read that, I would have said, okay, that's nice to say, but I'm not that stone. What are you talking about? So let's do some simple experiments with this. As you're looking at the stone, where is the boundary between you and the stone? Is it at your eyeball? Is it at the surface of the stone? Is it somewhere in between? No. Yes. It's in my mind. Yes. Ah, very good. It's in your mind. So, yes, in a certain sense, you can find the boundary, but what's the nature of the boundary in your mind? Ignorance. What? Ignorance. Ignorance, or it's imaginary, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's what we've been saying all along. There is a boundary in that sense, certainly. We create the boundaries in our mind. We create imaginary boundaries, and we superimpose them on our experience. So if we do find a boundary, you'll find that it's imaginary. Anybody else find a boundary? Okay, um, let's pick up the stone and close your eyes for this one and tap it and listen to the sound and see if there's a boundary between you and the sound. Or another way to ask that question is, is the sound outside you or is it inside you? Where is the tapping? Inside. 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 Really? <laughs> That's interesting. Most people would say it's outside. It's coming from outside. I hear it inside my head. You hear it inside your head? Yeah, it's in my head. 
Do you hear the train inside your head? Do you ever hear anything outside your head? Okay, well then there's no boundary, is there? Considering from an auditory point of view, if everything is inside, there's no boundary. You and Tom, and they're all imaginary. <laughs> Excellent. Anybody else in the tapping? Okay, let's um, put the stone in the palm of your hand and close your eyes again and feel the weight, the sensation of what we call weight in our language. Does it belong to the stone or does it belong to the palm of your hand? Yes, Tom? When you say feel the weight in your hand, there's some imaginary distinction between the stone and the hand. I mean, I feel the weight. I feel the weight of the hand, the weight of the stone, the weight of the body. I just feel weight, you know. So if I if I don't make the distinction between the hand and the stone, all I feel is weight. Okay, is that everybody's experience? It's one sensation there, right? Right. Now, if you have a, a stone with an edge, it probably won't work with a symmetrical stone like that, press it into the palm of your hand until you feel a little bit of pain. Not too much. Don't draw blood. Now, is the pain in your hand or in the stone? In your head. Actually, it's a jester. Yeah, it's all in Jack's head, right? We're all Jack's dream. <laughs> but this is interesting here because conventionally speaking, you know, we attribute the weight, just the sheer weight, to the stone. But when we feel a pain from the stone, we attribute that to the hand. So this is a very good example of how, by convention, we manipulate these boundaries, these distinctions. So you don't go to the doctor and say, there's a pain in my knife. You go to the doctor and say, there's a pain in my hand, right? And it's useful to do that, by the way. I'm not suggesting you do anything else. But still, this is the whole point. We use these boundaries. We use these distinctions. They're very useful. They're very practical. They can even be beautiful and wonderful. But we never want to lose track of the fact that they are imaginary. That's the key here. So when we go look closely at our experience, we're looking for boundaries in our experience, I think you'll find we won't find any boundaries between ourselves and any phenomena that arises in consciousness. So let's do that. Let's look closely. Let's try to pay attention in our meditative space of spacious awareness. And we'll go through the fields, and as we go through each field, the first thing you want to, again, look for is, is there a boundary between one field and the next? 
<coughs> so when we move, for instance, from bodily sensations and then we move to sound, okay, we'll make that move across that boundary and then we'll, as it were, look back and see if that boundary was really there. And then whatever phenomenon we're contemplating, we will try to see, is there really a boundary between this phenomena and me, whatever me is? And so we finally include all phenomena and we'll be sitting there in spacious awareness, and I shouldn't say sitting there, we will be like that bird that Sokhnai Rinpoche described, soaring in space but going nowhere, perfectly alert, perfectly relaxed, all this phenomena will be arising and we will just be noticing if there are any real boundaries here. And if we seem to find a boundary, then we will look and see, is that boundary real or is that a thought? Is it a mental boundary? Is it imaginary? Or is it actually some boundary within the sensory realm? Okay? So uh, you can put your stone out in front of you if you want and uh, use that when we get to the site part of it. Or you could keep it in your hand and use it in the bodily sensations, whatever you want to do. Unfortunately, it's a boundary. You can't do both. Here we go. You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.